Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Samuel chapter 14. There are some selected verses, and I will tell you each time we move to a new verse. So we're starting on verse 1 through 19. The text will be on the screen behind me for you to follow along. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahiah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geber. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of those, those uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign for us. So both of them showed themselves in the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they, were, where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about twenty men within, as it were half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp in the field. And among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahiah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Verses 24 through 30. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged. On my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dripping, 
but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day, and the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of his, this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Verses 43 through 46. Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. And the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Verse 52. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated this morning. Well, again, I want to welcome you to the Parks Church. So glad that you're here. If you're new with us, this is what we do uh, at the Park Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we're making our way through First uh, and Second Samuel uh, during this, <clears throat> this Advent season as well, and really excited uh, about a Christmas Eve service coming up on Saturday. Uh, we'll have two services inside because it is going to be like negative uh, 47 outside. Um, some of you are like, you guys made a good call bringing it inside this year, right? Yeah, so we're going to have two services in here, 3.30 and uh, 5 o'clock, and so you want to make sure to join us, family, friends. Let's get one family service, and if you've done it before with us in here in terms of the Christmas Eve service, you know that it is an absolutely, uh, just a celebration of Jesus and his arrival and, and all that that means. So we're really excited, but we get to celebrate that, right? Uh, like Michael said on the announcement, uh, every day, particularly every Sunday, we celebrate uh, Jesus, and this is uh, no different here in 1 Samuel 14, a very uh, interesting uh, chapter. I, I think one of the most underrated chapters, honestly, in, in 1 Samuel. And, and if you, you heard Vivian as she, she read the text, I hope you picked up even some of the, the language that we'll read about in a few more chapters, the, the most famous passage in uh, 1 Samuel, right, with David, uh, this, this little boy versus the great giant of Goliath. Um, that is really uh, 2.0 of the story you just read here. This is really the first introduction to uh, God's faithfulness in a profound way by taking really not, not a small boy, but, but a young man named Jonathan. Jonathan hasn't had much play up until last week. Jonathan is uh, Saul's son, and at this point, Jonathan's age is probably an upper teenager, maybe somebody in his, his early 20s, 
And if you recall from last week, um, this, this story that we read today really f- flies nearly simultaneous with the things that Saul was doing. King Saul, right? The, the one who which the Israelites had asked for. He made, a, he made an improper sacrifice and offering, didn't he? Why? Because he was impatient. He was supposed to wait on Samuel the priest, but he saw things collapsing around him with his eyes, and he's like, what is going on? People are fleeing. He's supposed to be building up an army. He's this warrior king, but people are fleeing. And what are the Philistines doing, right? The, the enemy of the nation of God, right? They're growing in number. And it said that they were like the, the sand on the seashore. That was their number, 30,000 plus chariots and, and all this, this incredible stuff. And Saul, last week, saw that happening, and, and, and he freaks out. He, he's like, I'm not going to wait anymore on Samuel. Samuel's late, right? And so he makes this offering, and Samuel comes up on the scene, and he, he, he asks this question. He says, what have you done? Like, there was obviously an agreement between Saul and Samuel, and then we definitely know that Samuel was not authorized to make sacrifices, to make these offerings. Samuel comes up and is like, what have you done? And what rolls out of Saul's mouth? Not repentance, not confession, not going, I... You're right, I'm impatient, I've messed up before the Lord. Excuses. Excuses roll out of Saul's mouth. And we talked about last week how this really shows his heart. Saul is about himself. Saul is about building and participating, not in the kingdom of God, but in his own kingdom. Building his own kingdom. And so we leave with, with Samuel last week going, your kingdom is done. Your rule, your reign will come to an end. It will not get passed on to your family. It will not continue on. There will be a new king, king we all know, right, will be King David. How does that impact Jonathan, the son of Saul? Profoundly, right? But in a chapter, really in a book, where um, sons tend to, to kind of disappoint, right? Think about the sons of Eli even think about the sons of Samuel explained in 1 Samuel. They're not faithful to God. Here we have a bright shining star named Jonathan, the son of Saul. And so this morning, I want to talk out of chapter 14 about two things. Two things that I think are at the heart of this chapter. And two things are this, control and identity. Control and identity. I know those two things are not relevant to us in our hearts or in our lives. Just kidding. Um, But I really believe that as Christians, as disciples who want to faithfully follow Jesus, we have to do a better job in our lives of tracking things deeper than just surface level. And I've been beating that drum for the last two weeks. We've got to do better as disciples of Jesus of tracking things deeper into our lives, right? Not asking just one surface level why question, but maybe five whys. Why is this happening? Why is this occurring? What's taking place here? You see, and, and, and hear me, there is a balance. There's a balance that we don't want to become so self reflective, right? That we become self centered. However, I'm not worried about that in, in this particular audience, but what I am worried about is the shallowness in our relationship with Jesus, in potentially our lack of honesty, in realization of where we really are before the Lord. And if there's a text that I use to highlight um, the deadly nature of shallowness, it's Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 
There's a passage there that Jesus is talking about how where people will be standing before the Lord, and I believe it's in verses 20 and 21, where they'll stand before the Lord, and they'll look at the Lord, and they'll go, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do all of these incredible miracles? Did we not see healings? Did we not see you move powerfully? Did we not do all of this in your name? Like we saw all of these things with our eyes, and those things very much happened. That wasn't a lie. The ministry went on. There were healings. There were prophecies going forth. But here is the scary part. God looks back at them, and what does he say? He says, yeah, you know that. And that's one of those verses that keeps me tethered, that keeps me humble before the Lord to go, Lord, is this just surface level stuff? Is what's going on in my life similar to that, like the Pharisees, where Jesus rolls up and he goes, you are a whitewashed tomb. Everything on the outside looks and the appearance is one thing, but the inside is something different. That's a very sobering passage. And I think this, in, in, in 1 Samuel 14, it draws us into those deeper places of what is our true identity and who do we believe is actually in control. We just sang songs about it, but let's really evaluate. Let's unpack it. And so um, this chapter is a comparison uh, between Jonathan and Saul. The king versus his son. But more than that, it could be said it's a comparison between fear and faith. Courage versus cowardice. Obedience versus disobedience. And so let's let's unpack the text. You can keep your Bible or your, your study notebook open on your lap. The first thing that is obvious is um, this idea of activity versus passivity. And this is verses 1 through 5. And remember, Saul at this time has just made that that improper offering and sacrifice. What is Jonathan doing? Jonathan is is coming back to attack the Philistines. And look at it here. It says, one day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison on the other side. Now, now recall, Saul is supposed to be the one leading the nation of Israel into battle versus the Philistines. But who do we see as actually being the faithful one in leading over and over again the Israelites into battle versus the Philistines? That's right, Jonathan. And him being a, a potentially an older teenager, a young man, I love that it adds this note, but... He did not tell his father. So what's going on there? Is that like classic kind of teenage rebellion? Like, don't tell dad, you know, to his armor bearer? I think this tells us something much uh, deeper than that. Jonathan is aware. Jonathan is aware of his father's action and activity. Jonathan knows and understands the movement of God away from his father. He also knows probably if he would have told his dad, guess what? Saul would have opposed it. Paul would have said, uh, Saul would have said, no, you're not going to do that. You're not going there. He maybe would have pointed at his age. He maybe would have pointed at something else that I'll unpack here in a minute. But what I want to highlight in this section is Jonathan's activity and Jonathan's faithfulness as contrasted to Saul's. Look at this. Now, verse 2, so we have Jonathan his action and activity, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave of Migron. A lot of words, a lot of places. Here's what that is telling you. Saul has actually moved further and further away from the battle. 
So you have where the Philistines are, this garrison that Jonathan is going after. Now Saul has moved to, ESV translates it as a cave, but puts a little number by it. That is probably actually translated a pomegranate tree. So get the picture here. You have Jonathan storming the Philistines. And then over here, you have Saul, the king, with 600 people, soldiers around him. Jonathan just has this one little armor bearer, all right? He has this whole army of troops around him, and he is sitting under a pomegranate tree away from all the action and activity in this passive posture. Now, what's interesting is the author here also includes who's surrounding Saul. Look at it. I'm not going to try to pronounce those names. Vivian did a perfect job of it up here, right? But it says that one of them, oh, it's the nephew of someone, Ichabod. You remember Ichabod from, you know, 35 weeks ago when I taught on that, right? What does the name Ichabod mean, right? No glory. The glory has departed. And so get this, Jonathan and his armor bearer right there, right? Just those two being active, being faithful, doing the very thing that God actually asked Saul to do. And Saul has removed himself away, is in a passive posture under a pomegranate tree, surrounded by an army with his company being no glory's nephew. That's his counsel. Those are the people speaking into Saul's life. Now let's keep going on the story. I think this is one of the best stories written in 1 Samuel, by the way. You see what Jonathan has just taken on is an impossible task. Like there is no way that the Israelites can defeat the Philistines on the surface. No way. The Philistines, 30,000 plus troops, weapons, And if you remember the end of chapter 13 last week, it ended by going, no one in all of Israel had a weapon except for Saul and Jonathan. So the Philistines, known for their military prowess, known for their technological advances in things like weaponry, iron weapons particularly, they have all of those things, and Israel has no weapons No iron weapons except for two. And the guy who has one of the swords is under a pomegranate tree, not doing anything. Impossible? You bet. More impossible even than David versus Goliath? You bet. But let's look at Jonathan. In the face of that impossibility, what does he say? Verse 6. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. He doesn't even, he doesn't even give them the like, honor of calling them the Philistines. He calls them the uncircumcised because now he is hearkening back to who are the circumcised. The circumcised are those who are the covenant people of God. So he's essentially going, we're the covenant people of God. They're not the covenant people of God. Who do you think God is going to be for, armor bearer, right? It's like, it's like a real, not, not a pep talk to get him fired up, but just the realities. He's going to be for his people. That's what Jonathan is saying here. And so he says, let's go over there. And then this line is where we're going to camp out most, and we're going to keep coming back to this. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That line 
is the crux of this whole chapter. Another translation says this, perhaps the Lord will save us today. Imagine the conversation between these two young men. Jonathan's looking at his armor bearer going, look, we got one of the two swords, but more than that, we have the Lord. So perhaps the Lord will save us. And then he goes, but hear me very clearly, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many, and I'm sure he points over to the Philistine camp, or by few. Where does Jonathan just place his trust? Yeah, not in weaponry, not in military prowess, not in the number of forces. He puts his trust all on God. You see, I typically don't ask this question, but I will hear. Like, how do we live lives like that? Like, I, I read Jonathan in the story, and I'm like, I, I'm going to be honest. I probably would be the guy with the 600 troops under the pomegranate tree scheming. You know? Trying to materialize a plan. Trying to go, okay, what's the strategy? Let's build the structures to take it. They got 30,000. We've only got 600 because everybody else has fled. How do we strategize a way just to kind of whoop, and then we win, right? It's not that he didn't want a victory. Saul very much wanted a victory. But how, how, do we, how do we live like Jonathan in this moment? Here it is. You believe this word in verse 6. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Where does courage come from? True biblical courage. I'll talk about the worldly flimsy stuff here in a second. Where does true biblical courage come from? It comes from there. It comes from that fact that you truly believe that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving from freeing you, from restoring your marriage, from saving your loved one, from, from restoring a community. You believe, you truly believe nothing can hinder him, whether by many or by few. The Lord, he is the one who saves. That's what Jonathan believed. And so he was willing to, and I'm going to use this word very purposely, he was really willing to risk everything. Now risk is an interesting word. Tim Keller, a great author, pastor out of New York City, he did a talk to entrepreneurs, business leaders, around this idea of, of measuring risk. And, and, and what he says in this talk is that the word risk, the word risk actually doesn't show up in our vocabulary or in our writings until the 16th and 17th century. Get this, right? 16th or 17th century. Well, if you know your history, you know that that's the Enlightenment time. So this word shows up during the Enlightenment. And what is true? What, what is the, kind of the essence of the Enlightenment period? Here's what the essence of the Enlightenment period is that people's view of themselves and them being in control began to rise. And people's view of God being in control began to decline. And in that moment, the word risk rolls on to the scene, right? People's control, view of control, being in themselves, rising, the view of God's control, declining. We're still living in that right now. So this idea of, of risk, we begin to ask questions like this and see how often you've asked these questions. How do we eliminate risk? How do we mitigate risk? How do we, how do we handle these things so that the risk might be lessened? I'm convinced that we have a tendency in our lives to, to, to disbelieve the actual and functional control God has over us. Let me say that again. 
We have a tendency not to believe the actual, listen, I think everybody in this room would confess with their lips, yeah, God's in control of everything. But what about functionally in your life? Do you really believe that? Do you really live in light of that? And the reality is, the less we see God moving around us, the more likely we are to evaluate risk. And again, I tip my hand a little bit to say, if I'm in this scene, right, if I'm placing myself here, I'm probably under the pomegranate tree because I am a chronic evaluation of risk kind of guy, right? I want to know the next steps. I want to know the next plan. I want to know how this is going to work out. I want to know the system to plug into, right? All those things. Listen, we do that most often when we can't see God working, when we don't have a vision that nothing can hinder him. And so when we lose the vision that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, here's what we do. We fall on our own strength, our own evaluation of risk or how things might play out or how we eliminate it. You see, in the advice we get in this world about being courageous or being brave, right? If you're honest, it doesn't really hold water. Because what does the world tell you? How are you courageous? How, how, how do you step out in these moments? There's some inner quality. There's some trait inside of you that has to be pulled out or appealed to. That is garbage. Jonathan is not, he, he's not calling out an inner quality in him or in this armor bearer. He's calling on something and believing in something outside of himself. And so hear me very clearly this morning. The source of biblical courage, and really the source of courage at all, comes from our identity. And not only is that the source of courage, that is also the source of fear in our lives. Also, courage and fear come from where we truly believe outcomes come from. Think about that in your life. Who do you think has the power? You or the one who you'd confess is in control of everything? And not even just how do you believe that intellectually, how do you believe that functionally? And if you trace that far enough back deeply, you're going to find out where you truly believe outcomes come from. Do they come from you or the Lord? You see, this is also illuminated in the text. Go to verse 19. We look at Saul. So Jonathan storms this. He, he like climbs a mountain with his armor bearer and, and great confusion takes over the Philistines where these two armor bearers just, just absolutely begin this incredible military victory, just those two. And Saul, right, under the pomegranate tree with his crew, look at it in verse 19. Start in verse 18. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. Now, pause. If you've been with me over any of these teachings, you know that ark of God is significant. I've said it three times now. When you see the ark of God, we know that the treatment of God in that place is going to be a commodity treatment. He's going to be using God to get what he wants. This is not a place of true worship. This is not sincere. This is not honest. If it would have been sincere and honest, the other places we see that in Scripture, it says this, the ark of the Lord. So the ark of God cues us to something else. So he says, bring the ark of God over here. Well, what does Saul want? For the ark of God went at this time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So what does that mean? That means that it's appearing that the Israelites are winning meaning the confusion in the, in the Philistines' camp has overtaken them. Who's brought that confusion? 
God has, right? That's always the answer, class, right? Jesus, God, right? Holy Spirit, one of them, right? Yeah, yes, you're right. They have created, God has created that confusion. And Jonathan and the armor bearer are just there as faithful participants in what's going on. Now, if you'll recall back in either chapter four or five, God defeated the Philistines with no army and no help. This is a reoccurring theme, right? But here in this battle, he has Jonathan and the armor bearer, but he's create, God is creating the confusion. And Saul, the king, sees this. And Saul's trying to decide, what do we do? Do we take up the military? Do we go? Do we go? Bring the ark of God here. This will tell us. And now, by the way, I don't think this is actually the ark of the covenant. I think this is something different because the text will tell us later on that that's probably at at some house right now, and David will be the one to bring that back. So the ark of God here is probably something that, that the priest would have carried with him to essentially cast lots to say, go forward or don't go forward. What should we do? Let's ask God. Now, in typical Saul fashion, he sees what's going on. He sees a victory happening, right? And he's waiting. And so then here's what takes place at the end of chapter, or at verse 19, right? He sees this happening. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. In other words, forget it. There's about to be a victory. We need to go, go, go. Saul's impatience, part two doesn't wait on these things to transpire. And this whole process illuminates Saul's insecurity. What is the biggest loss here for Saul? It's not what you might think. The biggest loss here for Saul is that Saul's identity can't handle not being at the forefront of a victory. Saul's identity can't see a win happening and him not jump in the middle of it and rise up on top and go, look what I've done, nation. Look at your king. Do you remember Saul's impatience last week? Saul's impatience last week was he literally saw loss and defeat happening all around him. So get this, Saul's ego and his identity can't handle losing and he can't handle winning and him not being a part of that. Saul's whole identity is wrapped up in his power and in his position as king. And he will do anything to maintain that identity. And Jonathan, by contrast, he is the one who is actually fighting faithfully the Philistines. Saul's identity himself, his his kingdom, his power, his position. Jonathan's identity, the one true God. And this identity plays itself out in control with Saul. Look at verse 24. So he he engages in this battle. He heads down. And so if he can't control the battle, Saul will control what he wants. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people. So they're in battle. They're hard-pressed. So this makes sense, this oath. Listen to it. Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. You hear the I language? Saul goes, until I am avenged against my enemies, enemies. So what does he do? He controls the soldier's food. This is our nature. When we can't control certain things, we turn to what we believe we can control. If you can't control the big things, if you can't control something like the progress of war, why don't I control something like food? Saul understood that the battle was being won. 
the victory was nearly secured. And what does he do in that moment? He controls his army by going, don't eat. And then on contrast, Jonathan doesn't hear this oath. And what does he do? I I love what the author does here. He says, as the army went through the forest, what was on the ground? Honey. Now, tie this back to Exodus, where the Lord provided something called manna. And if you read in Exodus, manna, it says, tasted like honey. And so what the author is trying to do here is to go, Saul is preventing from his army the very thing God has provided for them, for strength, for energy. And Saul is going, no. Saul is cursing what God has provided. And I want to make this statement that fear and misplaced identity will blind us to the provision of God in our lives. Like we don't just talk about misplaced identity like, oh, my identity's in this, I talk about identity in this. No, hear me. A misplaced identity will blind your eyes from seeing that which God has provided for you. A misplaced love that we talked about in the Advent reading will blind your heart and your eyes from seeing the very gifts God has laid before you. In fact, sometimes, like Saul, you'll call them bad. Isn't this true in the Gospels? That the misplaced identity of the religious leaders, the misplaced identity of the crowds, right? They wanted a miracle worker. They wanted this eloquent teacher. But when Jesus began to speak truth, they backed away. Why? Because it began to poke at their true identity. They missed, they were blinded to God's provision. The bread of life standing right before them. And some of you, you're in that position today. Your eyes are blinded to the precision, provision of God. See, what's so amazing is Jonathan is the one being raised up here. Saul is trying with all his effort to be the one being raised up. Jonathan is working and battling even with the understanding that he has no, no line to the throne, that his line has been cut off because of his dad's disobedience. What motivates Jonathan at this point to do what he's doing? God's glory, his identity, and Israel's good. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. This keys us into where Jonathan's identity really lies. Jonathan's asking his armor bearer, what is God doing here? How is God working? And get this, we get to participate. We get to join him. You see, true biblical courage, one author and pastor said this, true biblical courage is produced by a shrinking view of self and a growing realization of what God is doing around us. Jonathan could perceive that. Saul could not. John the Baptist, he said nearly the same thing. The famous verse, John 3.30, right? I must, what does it say? He must increase and I must decrease. How is John able to say that? How's he able to say it so early on with Jesus? Two chapters earlier, here's the foundation of John's identity. 
He confessed, as John the Baptist confessed, and did not deny, deny but confessed, I'm not the Christ. I am not in control. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one. Here he says, I'm not the one in charge. Some of you are looking at me like I'm the one in charge. I'm the one in control. I am the Christ. Some, he says, some of you look at me saying that. And he goes, he makes this announcement. I am not the Christ. That is a confession we all must make. I'm not the Christ. Mom, let me free you from some of your guilt and shame at home. You're not the Christ. You're not in charge of saving your kids. You're not in charge of making sure everything is perfect and right. You're not the one in charge. You're not the Christ. Husbands, let me remind you this, that Jesus is the head of the church and your household. He is the Christ. You are not. Take a deep breath because you're not in control. Jesus is, and that is good news this morning. That is the news that Jonathan rested on. And he went into battle with going, listen, perhaps the Lord may save. He might do a mighty work, but here's what I know. Nothing can hinder him from saving. Nothing can hinder him. Listen, every time, we should just make this a regular activity. Every time we feel a bit of anxiety or fear, we should, we should turn into it and go, why do I feel like this? Why do I feel this anxiousness? Why do I feel this fear? Typically, here's why. Because in some way, it messes with your true identity. Anxiousness will flow out of what you are truly finding your identity in. You see, real courage isn't staring down risk. Real biblical courage starts with reprioritizing. By truly being able to acknowledge I'm not the Christ. I'm not sufficient in of myself. This was the language that David used over and over again. And I know we'll talk more about David, but it's so good to talk about him right now. Because he gets this. Places like Psalm 3, where it talks about God being the lifter of his head, his help. He literally goes, God is my glory in Psalm 3. You see, what David is doing there is he's processing his own fear. And he recognizes where his strength comes from, and it's not inward. You see, do we say, do we confess, God having you is the most important thing in my life. That's my worth, that's my value. That echoes David. And then I love at the end of Psalm 3, if we had it, you'd see it. He says, then I, I lay my head down and sleep. There's like this peace that comes over David when he realizes this, when he realizes and relinquishes control. But verse 52, the end of this passage, this really sums up Saul. He says, there was hard fighting against the Philistine all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. That's not because Saul was a great recruiter. That's because Saul was all about himself. Any valiant man, any brave man, any great warrior, Saul attached himself to him. It's all about him, for his battles, for his kingdom. But on the other hand, Jonathan... This whole thing was God's. These battles, these people, and even his own life. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? You know that passage, verse 35, I think 38, 39? Famine, disease, death. Notice Paul doesn't say none of these things will happen to you. They may happen to you. 
And Paul makes the emphatic statement, not even death can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. Um, if you're a sports fan or you've played sports, um, you, you know this statement or you know this sentiment. But the most dangerous team in any game is the team that has nothing to lose. Right? It's the team that's going out there. There's no expectation on us. <laughs> There's a, like everybody's expecting us to lose, right? But they just go into that, right? right? I've also heard, uh, this may surprise some of you, right? Same sentiment. I've never been in a fight before, not an actual fight, right? But the most dangerous person in a fight, right, is the same person. The guy who has nothing to lose. Listen, that's what I see in Jonathan. He's going, listen, the battle has already been won. The victory has already been won. This is the mentality for us as Christians. We have Christ. The victory in the battle has already been won. So as we go to war against the things that plague us, the things that plague our world, listen, we can stand secure. Listen, what happens to us happens to us, but nothing can hinder the Lord. And so we jump into participation in biblical courage in that kind of way, right? And we go, listen, Lord, you have secured everything in Christ in my life, in our life as a church. Now let us go to battle because nothing can hinder you. Nothing can hinder you. And so we're going to take communion this morning. And uh, this is the security we have. This is what anchors our faith, that we have a Savior who came who lived perfectly and died innocently for us so that we could stand up here. I could stand up here on a stage and say, listen, there's nothing that can hinder him. Do you need proof? He will lay down his life for you and for me. And some of you this morning, maybe you go, Kyle, that's just a bunch of religious jargon. It's not a bunch of religious jargon. It's reality. And the Holy Spirit this morning, I believe genuinely, is pursuing you. You say, Kyle, you don't know what I've done. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Kyle, you don't know how bad our marriage is. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Kyle, you don't know how addicted I've been. I've been doing this since I was a child. Nothing can hinder the Lord from delivering you this morning. I believe that with all my heart. God, why do you believe that with all your heart? Because he's done it for me. That's my story. That's our story. I could march up hundreds of people to go, listen, listen, this is my story. Nothing hindered the Lord from saving. Nothing could hinder the Lord because I tried to hinder him. So let me pray for us. Host ushers, you can come down. Father, um, I don't know of a more appropriate message or verse than nothing can hinder you from saving in an Advent season that literally you work through a virgin woman to bring your son here to redeem us. Nothing can hinder you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would read this verse, we would see this verse, and it would chip away at the, the false identities that we have, the securities and the hopes that we put our trust in that are not anchored in you. Build our identity upon Jesus, Lord. Build it upon him where we would live and we would work and we would operate and we would love. Not trying to mitigate risk, but like Jonathan, 
with a vision of God and how he wants to participate, how he wants us to participate with him. And so, Father, I pray as we come to these tables, Lord, as we grab these elements, it would not be religious routine, but it would be sincere. It would be honest. It would be from a heart anchored, an identity anchored in Jesus. Lord, I thank you for this community of faith. May we wrestle deeply with the things you've called us to for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.